You've heard the saying, I'm not under law, I'm under grace. So just exactly what is somebody saying when they say something like that? And how accurate, according to scripture, is it really? Well, stick around, find out next. covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, law and grace. Does grace override the law or does the law still apply? Do they work in tandem with one another? What is the dynamic between law and grace? And can we actually say, I'm under grace, you can't judge me on the law? Well, today, here on Graceful Truth, Pastor Steve Converse reminds us that the law is not sin, but it does reveal our sin and it provokes sinners to sin, bringing us a desperate need for grace. They work in tandem, as we'll see. Join us. Here's Pastor Steve Converse now with today's broadcast of Graceful Truth. So today I want to look at that God gave his law to convict us of our sin and to bring us to the end of ourselves so that we would flee to Christ for salvation. I think a lot of us have self-righteousness so ingrained in us that until the, the stripes of the law convict us of our own sin, we will not cast ourselves totally on Christ. Because we live in a culture, once again, that's not focused on the sinfulness of man. You don't sin, you just make a mistake or you make a life choice. You may want to bring Jesus into your life as a life coach. You know, to help you out, the self-improvement program. I mean, that's where people are at with all this. But to trust him as our savior, if you're, if you're going to need a savior, you're going to have to understand the depth of our sin from which we need to be saved. And that's what Paul describes here. Uh, now, this section of Romans is kind of difficult. It's hard. It's going to take a couple of weeks to get through this, but it's, it's, it's hard to understand. Um, you notice in verses 7 to 25... Of chapter seven, or chapter seven, verses seven to twenty-five, he changes to the first person singular. Does it again in there in chapter eight? He goes back back to the other. It's kind of interesting why he does that. And there's a lot of scholars that debate: Is Paul speaking about himself? Or is he not? What's going on here? And then in verse nine, he says something that's that's really tough to understand: that that he's been alive apart from the law. And there's a lot of controversy. I mean, you can read for ages on all this stuff and try to figure this out. But we're going to kind of approach this in a pretty simplistic manner and just take it at face value and see if we can understand what Paul is writing here. He's using his own experience, I believe, to show how the law functions, how the law brings conviction of sin. But he also wants us to understand that it's powerless to deliver us from sin's grip. So the law of God does have a role to play. We don't want to just throw it out now that we're under grace. It does have a role. Well, one of those roles is the first point here in our outline, that the law is not sin, but it does reveal our sin. That's what he says in verse 7. The law is the law sin? No way. He says, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. It goes back to the same illustration. Unless there's a sign that says you're breaking the law, you're, you're, the sign that says you're to go 30 miles an hour and you're driving 50, if there's no sign, you're not convicted of anything. But if they've got a big sign there, the ones that get me a lot of times are the ones that actually track you live. 
you know, the ones that are solar, the little solar panels, and you're driving down Jefferson, your speed is, you know, 55. <laughs> then underneath it says 30, you know, you should be going 30. So it's kind of a reminder. If that wasn't there, you wouldn't feel any conviction. So the law reveals our sin. God uses a holy thing, the law, to reveal an evil thing, sin, so that a necessary thing, death, might result in the most important thing, life. Isn't that incredible? When you stop and you read that and you think about that, he uses a holy thing. God's law is holy. It's not bad. It's holy. It's his word. But he uses it to reveal an evil thing, sin, so that, it's necess- so that a necessary thing, death, might result in the most important thing, life. I didn't write that. Somebody else wrote it. I just took it out of a commentary. But I thought it was a good way to, to really understand what Paul is saying here. He says there, what shall we say then is the law sin, may it never be. He's responding to these critics there that would bring a reaction to what he said in verse 5. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions that was, was aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. The Jews honestly believed that God gave the law to give us life. That's what they thought. They thought that God gave us the law to make us holy. And Paul claimed, no, basically the law, what's it do? It arouses sin in us. And it results in death. And that's why they're, he's asking that question, is the law sin? And so he argues these different functions of the law. And he uses a personal example with the 10th commandment against coveting. That's what he says. He goes on in verse 7. He says, let me give you an example. He says, personally in my own life, for I would have not known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Isn't it interesting he used that one? You know, you stop and you think, why did he pick that one? Why did he pick this commandment against coveting? Because it really embodies God's requirement for living a holy life. It's the only command, if you stop and think about it, of the ten that condemns evil in the heart. He could have said, I didn't know it was wrong to murder until, you know, it said you shall not murder. But that's something you physically do. That's something you could see somebody doing. Somebody murders your neighbor and you watch him. You're going, well, that guy's a murderer. Or someone walks over to your desk and takes something off your desk and steals it. You go, well, that guy's a thief. How are you going to know if somebody's coveting? It's in their heart. So he went right to the heart level. And you know what? Jesus did the same thing. He pointed out commands against murder and adultery. And by implication, all the commands, really that they go deeper than just the outward action. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, if you're angry at your brother, what? You violated the command that you should not murder. If you lust in your heart toward a woman, you've committed adultery in God's sight, even though you haven't done anything physically. But the command against coveting explicitly goes right to someone's heart. Coveting really concerns your heart's desires, whether you ever act on those desires or not. When Paul says, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, he does not mean that he or others do not know sin at all apart from the law. That's not what he's saying. He's already said that back in chapter 2, verses 14 to 15, that Gentiles who do not have the law, right, they have the, the work of the law written on their hearts. They have a conscience. There's a lot of people that sinned from Adam to Moses. They didn't have the law of God, but they were still held responsible even though they didn't have the written law. And so what Paul is saying here is that especially this 10th commandment, focusing on these inward desires, what he's saying is, you know what, this one really got me. (laughs) This one really nailed me. It really came at me and it showed me 
my sin against God. Now, who was Paul before he was a Christian? He was Saul, right? He was a self-righteous Pharisee. That's what he was. And he thought that all of his deeds commended him to God. Matter of fact, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6, he even says himself, in regard to the law, he's what? Blameless. Right? He says, I'm blameless. You can't pin anything on me. But see, when the Holy Spirit brought this 10th commandment about coveting home to his conscience and showed it to him, Paul realized, wow, I violated God's law. At that point, he came to know sin. I mean, you, you, you can't understand that, but that's, that's really what, what happened to, to Paul. Now, remember who Saul was. Saul would go around and he would kill Christians. And he thought that by doing that, he was pleasing God. He wasn't just a brute in the neighborhood. Oh, they're going to go whack off a couple of Christians today. No, he did it as one of his religious duties. He thought, hey, these people are infringing on our, our Judaism, and this isn't right what they're saying, so we need to take these people out. That's what he did. I mean, when you stop and think about it, it wasn't too far from what's going on today in the world with ISIS. These people really believe what they're doing is somehow commending them to their God. It's hard to understand. Put somebody in a cage and light them on fire and you think God would be pleased with that? That's what they have in their mind. Kill the infidels. And at that point in Saul's life, he came to understand sin. He came to know sin. He came to to realize what it was. And you have to have that in your life. You know, you can't come to church and just put on different clothes and carry a Bible and sing some songs and and think that somehow that's saving you. That's not saving you. No one is saved until they come to the point in their life where they realize that their sin is an affront to a holy God and it needs to be dealt with. The only way to do that is through the law. The law shows us that. Well, why do you need the law to do that? Because you know what? Most people, even in our community today, if you go around and you ask people on the street, Hey, if you die today, do you think you go to heaven? Very seldom people would say no. Most people would probably say, well, I'm a pretty good person. Yeah, hopefully I'll make it. Or they'll say, oh, I'm Methodist, I'm Baptist, or I'm... Well, that's not the question. But that's where they go. Why? Because that makes them feel good about themselves. And so they're trying to what? They're, they're, They're trying to justify who they are. They're thinking well of themselves. Most people think that they're pretty good people. At least I'm not like my neighbor. <laughs> At least I'm not like my brother. At least I'm not like my sister. At least I'm not like this or that or whatever. Yeah, I'm a pretty good guy. And you remember what Jesus told people. If you want to enter the kingdom, you don't just have to be good. You have to be what? Perfect. You have to be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. And so people today even excuse their bad sins. They make excuses for them. Just as Paul excused His violent persecution of of Christians. It was a good cause in his mind. I mean, you can even go into a a prison today. These guys are locked up in prison. And you can sit down and you can ask them, you're a bad guy. And probably a majority of them say, well, I'm not that bad. No, you know, I'm not as bad as these other guys in here, man. I'll tell you, you know. Yeah, I got angry. My brother-in-law murdered him. But, you know, I'm still a pretty good guy. So they justify it. They, They truly do. I've seen it happen over and over and over again. I've seen men, unfortunately, heard men even justify, you know, little pornography here and there. You know, it's 
everybody looks at it after all, you know, it's not that big of a deal. It's not really hurting anybody. And, you know, I'm not really cheating on my wife. It's not something, you know, or the anger. You have an anger issue. Maybe you lose your temper. Hey, I didn't get out of the car and physically do anything. I just yelled at him through the, the window. See, people excuse all manner of sin and they think of themselves as basically good people. Why? Because they have not come to know God's law. Especially the law of God as it confronts our evil inner desires. And at the heart of this coveting is really the idea of the enthronement of self as Lord. That's what it is. And we need to be aware of that. So the law is not sin, but it does reveal our sin. Secondly, the law provokes sinners to sin. Oh, one last thing. I just forgot this. If you look over at James, James chapter 1, and this just kind of drives home the point here. James chapter 1, verse 22, after getting done saying, you know, you need to hear the word and and put away all filthiness and all this stuff. He says in verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. It's one twenty-two. I'm sorry, I think I said 2.22. 1.22. Verse 23, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, listen to this, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and he goes away, and at once he forgets what he was like. You know, you get up in the morning, you make your way into the bathroom, and you look in the mirror. I mean, how ridiculous would it be to look at that mirror and say, you know, I don't like what I'm looking at. (laughs) Stupid mirror. That'd be a ridiculous thing, right? I mean, you wouldn't break the mirror. I mean, it's just revealing what what you are, who you are. That would be silly. Just as silly as walking away going, oh, well, whatever, and go about your business. No, you want to fix whatever is broken. You don't want to break the mirror. What Paul's point back in Romans is the law is a good thing. The law is not bad. The law reveals our sin. Don't make a villain out of the law. It's just showing you who you are. The law is good. It's righteous. But secondly, the law provokes sinners to sin. The law provokes sinners to sin. He says in verse 8, But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. Apart from the law, sin is death. So Paul here basically says, first of all, the law reveals our sin, but secondly, it provokes us to sin. You know, he basically personifies here sin as an active force that uses the law to provoke us to commit acts of sin. Sin basically meaning the principle of the power, not just acts of sin, but, but the, whole, the whole deal. And he says that again down in verse 11, sin taking an opportunity through the commandment. That word opportunity is kind of interesting. It has the idea of setting up a military base, kind of like a beachfront, beach, beachhead kind of a thing where, where you would uh, run all your campaigns from. All right. So sin takes God's holy commandments and he uses them to tempt us, uses us to tempt, tempt us to violate those commands. James Boyce tells an interesting story when he was a little kid. In his commentary, he says the principal came into the classroom just before lunch and said that he had heard that some of the students had been bringing firecrackers to school. He went on to warn about the dangers of firecrackers and say that anyone caught with firecrackers at the school would be expelled immediately. Well, Boyce didn't own any firecrackers and he hadn't even thought about bringing firecrackers to school. But When you get to thinking about firecrackers, it's an intriguing subject, he says. 
He then remembered that one of his friends had some firecrackers in his garage. So during their lunch break, he and his friend went by his other friend's house, got a firecracker, and took it back to school. They went into the cloakroom and planned to light it, but they were going to pinch it out real quick before it exploded. But the lit fuse burned the fingers of the boy who was holding it. He dropped it and it exploded with a horrific bang, echoing in the old building with its high ceilings and marble floors and plaster walls. Before the boys could stagger out of the cloakroom, the principal was out of his office down the hall, standing there to greet them. He later says, as he sat in the principal's office with his parents, he remembers the principal saying over and over again, I had just told them not to bring any firecrackers to school. I can't believe it. But see, that's how sin operates, isn't it? St. Augustine said the same thing. He had a little confession and he said, there was a pear tree near, the, near our vineyard laden with fruit. One stormy night, we rascally youths set out to rob it and carry our spoils away. We took off a huge load of pears, not to feast upon ourselves, but to throw them to the pigs. Though we ate just enough to have the pleasure of the forbidden fruit, they were nice pears. But it was not pears that my wretched soul coveted. For I had plenty better at home. I picked them simply in order to become a thief. The only feast I got was the feast of iniquity. And that I enjoyed it to the full. What was it that I loved in that theft? Was it the pleasure of acting against the law? In order that I, a prisoner under rules, might have a maimed counterfeit of freedom by doing what was forbidden? The desire was to steal, was awakened simply by the prohibition of stealing. That's what happens. And that's what the law does. The law says you shouldn't do this. Well, you know what? What are we doing? We're we're driven to that. We want to do that. And so it provokes us to sin. Even before the flood, when God gave the law to Moses, the world was so sinful. In in chapter 6, verse 5 of Genesis, it says that the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great upon the earth and that the intent of their thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so when you stop and you you think, how is, is Paul able to say apart from the law, sin is dead? He meant it was dead to him. He saw himself as a good person. The law had not been yet revealed to his heart in that way. And so he says, apart from the law, yeah, didn't matter. There's an allegory in Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan's book, which talks about the arousal of sin by the law. And it reads this way. He says, a large dust-covered room in interpreter's house symbolized the human heart. When a man with a broom representing God's law begins to sweep, the dust swirls up and all but suffocates Christian, the character in the book, and that is what the law does to sin. It so agitates sin that it becomes stifling. And just as a broom cannot clean a room of dust but only stir it up, so the law cannot cleanse the heart of sin but only make the sin more evident and unpleasant. And that's what Paul is showing us here. Third thing the law does is the law, through our failure to keep it, brings us to the end of ourselves. And that's what he says there in verses 9 to 11. I was once alive apart from the law, 
But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it, killed me. We're going to touch on that next week as well. But it's important to note here, when Paul says that he was once alive apart from the law... Okay, this same apostle is the one who said that before salvation, we're all dead in our sins. So what does he mean by that? How could he once be alive if he says at another point in time in Ephesians, he says we're all dead in sin. What was he talking here about apart from the law? He was raised from his youth up with the strictest traditions of Judaism. And when sin did, sin did kill him, when did that happen? We're going to answer all those questions. And I think that that's one thing that we need to uh, be reminded of. That the law is not there for us to keep it. It's there to reveal our sin. It's there to point out our sin. It's through the law that we understand our need of a Savior. Uh, That's why it's so important when you're sharing the gospel. You don't always need to make the gospel sound so flowery and oh Jesus wants to come into your life and just make the best thing of everything and just please you please you please you you know that's not necessarily the truth as a matter of fact the Bible says that when Jesus comes into our life it's going to get harder it's going to get more difficult it's going to become a struggle and so we need to be aware of that So when you're sharing the gospel with people, a lot of times it's good to share the law of God with them first to help them understand that, you know what, there is a law and that you've broken the law. And this is what the law of God says. And then when they become undone, then you share the grace of God with them. You share that, hey, there's a way out of this mess. You know, you don't just bail them out right away because they're not going to understand their need for a savior if that's the case. Father, we thank you for... Your word, we thank you, Lord, today that you clearly uh, have given us your complete word, including the law of God. It's not something that we should um, not understand. It's not something that we should set aside. It's not something that we should not read and, and apply to our lives. But, Lord, we also know that the law can't save us. It's only by grace we're saved through faith, through the work of Christ. And so, Lord, if there's anyone here today who's been trying to maybe save themselves, trying to do all the right things, trying hard to live and transform their life and and find themselves and do all these things that modern man tells us that we need to do, clean our act up, whatever it might be, all that stuff is not going to save you. You simply need to cry out to God, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. You have to understand that outside of Christ, there's no hope for you ever being saved. That you have to come to the end of yourself and realize that he is the only Savior. There's not many roads that lead to his kingdom. There's only one. And by the way, he even says that gate is narrow. So we we pray today for anyone here who's yet to put their faith, their trust in Christ. That you would convict their heart of their sin. That you would draw them to the Savior. That you would reveal to them their need of a Savior. And Lord, for us believers, as we go out into this lost and dying world, Lord, that we would have a message of hope and of forgiveness through Christ. Lord, that we wouldn't try to fine-tune the gospel to make it pleasing to men's ears, but, Lord, that we would give it boldly and truthfully and let that do the work 
in man's hearts. And Father, we thank you and we praise you. Well, thank you for spending time with us here today on Graceful Truth, the ministry of Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. It's our prayer here at Graceful Truth that God would reveal His grace to your hearts through the teaching of His Word each week. And we trust you're currently involved in a Bible teaching church in your area. If not, we'd love to have you come and visit us here at Grace Bible Church in Redwood City. We meet each Sunday morning for our praise and worship service at 10 a.m. We offer nursery care and Sunday school classes for our children up to grade five. And if you would like to encourage us here at Graceful Truth, please give us a call at Grace Bible Church here in Redwood City. Our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We meet at 2225 Euclid Avenue here in Redwood City. Directions are on our website, gracefultruth.org, or again, simply call 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. And again, we'd love to have you join us for worship. Simply call for directions or go to our website, gracefultruth.org. While you're at our website, make sure to check out the resource materials available from us here at Graceful Truth, including past programs of Graceful Truth that you can download for free. Gracefultruth.org is where to go. If you're writing to us, our address is 2225 Euclid Avenue. That's 2225 Euclid Avenue. We're here in Redwood City. The zip code is 94061. And again, our phone number is 650-366-9923. That's 650-366-9923. We thank you for spending time with us today and trust we'll see you next week at this same time for another broadcast of Graceful Truth with Pastor Steve Converse.